is Amy, and this is For the Record, the 70s. Welcome to all the new listeners, and welcome back to all of the old. Uh, In this episode, we will examine one of the most 70s of music genres, funk. And not just the music, but the message. I will also offer up my theory on how 70s funk is reminiscent of the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. In 1976, George Clinton, Dr. Funkenstein himself, was asked to define funk. He said that is impossible. He said, it's a mood. Musically, it can be a chant. It's like trying to describe a certain kind of candy bar. It's indescribably delicious. When asked why it is popular now, he said it was because black is what's happening. A year later, Vaughn Palmer wrote this in a column for the Vancouver Sun, published on August 26, 1977, about the latest Parliament Funkadelic album, Parliament Live. P-Funk, for short, is the merging of George Clinton's bands that form this kind of collective unit of members that rotate in and out. Palmer said that he asked his friend to help him make some sense of Parliament Live. His friend said, If Bruce Springsteen's music can be called the sound of a 56 Chevy fueled by ground-up crystals records, then Parliament's records must surely be the result of James Brown and Isaac Hayes records mixed in a high-speed wearing blender in the backseat of a leopard-skinned Cadillac pimp mobile. I think that gets us closer to a definition of funk, don't you? Funk is bass and drums, and it's harder, and it's more intense, and it is miles away from Motown's light pop hits of the 50s and early 60s. It is often hard to say just when a thing like funk begins, so I'm going to say right now that pinpointing where funk began is kind of hard to do. But I feel pretty confident in saying that the who it began with was James Brown. After the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, two of the most prominent spokesmen for African Americans were Muhammad Ali and James Brown. In fact, in the days after King was killed by James Earl Ray, Brown was asked to help calm the mass protesting that was happening all over the country, and I do mean all over. 200 cities reported uprisings, and President Lyndon Johnson called out the National Guard in some of these cities. At his own expense, James Brown flew to Washington, D.C., and made radio and TV broadcasts to try to help calm the tension. He was also on local TV in Boston, and he introduced the mayor, Kevin White, as a, quote, swinging cat, and he performed at a previously scheduled show 24 hours after King's death to try to save Boston from quite literally going up in flames. If you want to see some of the video from that night, please check out my show notes at ftr70.com. Suffice to say that Brown's influence was broad and it was deep on a cultural level and on a musical level. Musically, what James Brown did that was so revolutionary was he stressed the first beat on the one rather than on the second and the fourth beats, which was and is typical for rock and blues. It went something like this. Love, love, 
Papa's Got a Brand New Bag from 1965, which I have always considered the first funk record. But Scott McCormick wrote a really interesting article for a blog on the Disc Makers website, which is called James Brown and the Invention of Funk. And he makes the case that Brown started this evolution even earlier in 1960 with his cover of Think. And I think that Scott makes a really good argument. You can hear that, right? I think that's a really good point. I think seems to be a good launching point for what becomes funk. Now, back in the day, Eddie Murphy did a great James Brown impersonation, and he would mumble and garble the lyrics, which was hysterical. But also, it's important to keep in mind, at least for this podcast, that what James Brown was doing wasn't always about the lyrics. You might make a case for Uh, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, as being important lyrically, but not always. Often it was about the beat. Now, when we say James Brown, we shouldn't forget the band as a whole, which helped create this sound. Still, they were under his direction, and he had a pretty tight rein on them. So the notion of making the whole band, every instrument, function as a drum, that was James Brown. Now, If you looked into a futuristic crystal ball in 1968, and maybe you put that crystal ball up to your ear, and you heard cold sweat, you heard the future. What you were hearing in the future was what would become hip-hop. foundation for the hip-hop that would come about a decade later with cold sweat. Sylvester Stewart, better known as Sly Stone, built on the funk that James Brown created, and he applied it to an entire band. It is not at all insignificant that Sly and the Family Stone was an interracially mixed band, which was very intentional on his part. He wanted men and women, black and white musicians. He formed the band in 1966, which is a year before the Supreme Court ruled that it is unconstitutional to outlaw interracial marriage. Still, as we all know, changing laws does not automatically change belief systems. 
The band's first hits were upbeat and funky and very symbolic of the San Francisco free love theme, uh, Dance to the Music and Everyday People in 1968, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again in 1969. Larry Graham, the legendary bassist for the band, also invented a whole new way of playing bass guitar, the slap bass, or what he calls thumping and plucking. He thumped the thumb, which sounds like a bass drum, and then plucked a string, and that sounds like a snare drum. This was all born out of necessity when he played in his mother's band because they didn't have a drummer. And it sounds a little bit like this. Bass, very, very distinctive on uh, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself again. So when Sly and the Family Stone played Woodstock in August 1969, they finally went on stage at 3 o'clock in the morning when everyone's all snugged up in their sleeping bags or wherever. And it took a while, but the band was eventually able to rouse these thousands of sleepy music fans out of their sleeping bags And the band's popularity just took off from there. They became the kings and queens of Top 40 Radio. However, not everyone liked the music or the band's racial mix. The Black Panthers did not like the upbeat dance music. And Sly Stone's first manager, David Kapralik, told Ralph Novak in an article for People magazine in 1996 that the Black Panthers wanted the music to be more militant and they wanted Sly to get rid of the white members of the band. There are many misconceptions about the Black Panthers. And for a more in-depth look at them, I recommend that you seek out the documentary by Stanley Nelson that aired on PBS in 2016. But here's the least that you need to know. The Black Panthers were founded in 1966 by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale in California. And their motivation was to take some sort of action against police brutality that was happening against African Americans. And by action, I mean being on hand, not interfering, but being present as arrests occurred. By action, I mean arming themselves and, in their view, protecting themselves against an oppressive government. This included a group of about 30 members of the Black Panthers walking into the Capitol building in Sacramento on May 2nd, 1967, with shotguns. It is important to keep in mind that there was nothing illegal about this. They had the right, per the Second Amendment, to have their guns, and according to California law at that time, to openly carry their weapons. Part of what they were protesting was a proposed bill to take away the right of Californians to openly carry weapons. Now, imagine the scene and the difference in perspective if you were white or if you were black. 30 armed African Americans walking into the Capitol building, guns pointed at the ceiling, being trailed by a group of reporters. This might be a recruitment ad or it might be a call to alarm depending on who you were. By the way, 
They left peacefully, but they were arrested after they left the building on felony charges of trying to disrupt a legislative session. It's not hard to see how the paths of uh, Sly Stone and the Black Panthers would cross, both being in the Bay Area and uh, both being in the spotlight. Exactly why Sly's mood turned so dark and made such a dramatic shift away from songs like Dance to the Music and Everyday People, it seems like it was a combination of drugs and cynicism brought on by the disappointments of the post-1964 civil rights movement, and even more so the post-1968, after the assassination of Dr. King, civil rights movement. It is well documented that Sly was often so strung out on drugs that he missed shows, and his erratic behavior would be a big part of why the band didn't make it out of the 70s. He largely made the album There's a Riot Going On by himself, reportedly from his bed. It is a darker type of funk, and it had a lot of people confused, and some people were just turned off by it. Time has been a lot kinder to that album because it is easier to see now, or perhaps we are more willing to accept and to see how much of the album is a reflection of the mood that a lot of people were in in 1970 in 1971. This is a bit of their fourth and final number one hit, a much more moody Sly and the Family Stone. This is Family Affair. They just love to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. Mom loves the both of them. You see it's in the blood. Both kids are good and bomb. Blood's thicker than the mud. It's a family affair. So what happens when acid rock, no doubt inspired by Jimi Hendrix, meets funk? You get funkadelic, and you combine that with the theatrics and a band that seemingly never wants to stop playing, and then you get Parliament Funkadelic. George Clinton was in a doo-wop group called Parliament in the 1950s and revived that name for his wild funk band that was not one thing like the original Parliament. It would be impossible for me to outline all of the musicians who were part of the merging of Parliament and Funkadelic to make P-Funk. Just know this, they were given a lot of freedom by Clinton to create the sound that they wanted, and P-Funk gave you a show. They sold out stadiums, like Arena Rock sold out stadiums, only this was a much different type of a show. Well, there were some similarities with uh, the lights and all that, but I don't think that any Arena Rock bands had a spaceship like P-Funk had. In 1975, Parliament put out the album Chocolate City. 
in honor of Washington, D.C., which was given that nickname by local DJs because of the number of African Americans who lived there or who were moving there. It was an album that focused on the positivity of being black and was a statement about pride. The title track has this line, Don't be surprised if Muhammad Ali is in the White House and the name of that building is just a, quote, temporary condition. Remember, that was 1975. The idea that the United States would ever elect an African-American as president was laughable to many people. Chocolate City reminds me a bit of the literature and the poetry and music that was created during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. That was also a reclaiming or a statement, if you will, by African-Americans about their pride in being black. Remember the quote that I gave you at the beginning of this episode, Clinton said that black is what is happening. Did the music create that or did the music reflect that? I think like the work of Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Houston and Bessie Smith and Duke Ellington of the Harlem Renaissance era, funk was a driver and a mirror of African-American life in the 70s. But Chocolate City set the stage for what was to come. George Clinton was a genius at creating concepts and characters. A short essay written by Ben Greenman for the Library of Congress makes the point that Clinton recognized what Walt Disney also recognized, that characters have special powers that mere mortals do not. The album Mothership Connection is the epitome of this. Clinton and Bootsy Collins, the legendary bassist for P-Funk, claimed that they saw a spaceship while they were driving out of Detroit one night, and that served as their inspiration for the album. If you went to a P-Funk show in 1976, you would see George Clinton playing the role of Dr. Funkenstein climb out of a spaceship, which, by the way, is now at the Smithsonian. Dr. Funkenstein landed on Earth to help mankind correctly use their misused funk. Abe Peck, who was a reporter for the Associated Press, uh, who attended one of the shows, said that mankind looked like a cross between Star Trek and Sanford and Son. By the way, if you looked really close, you might notice that Clinton was naked when he came out of that ship. For Clinton... As the essay by Greenman says, space was not simply a place. It was a state of mind, and funk was the medicine to set your mind free. This is how the album begins. A good evening. Uh, do not attempt to adjust your radio. There is nothing wrong. We have taken control as to bring you this special show. We will return it to you as soon as you are grooving. A welcome to station W-E-F-U-N-K better known as We Funk, or deeper still, the Mothership Connection, home of the extraterrestrial brothers, dealers of funky music, P-Funk, uncut funk, the bomb. That gives you an idea of what you were in store for with Mothership Connection. In the live show, the song that plays at the climax of the alien invasion and the song that was all over the radio in 1976 was Give Up the Funk. Tether off, we're gonna tether off the mother sucker. Tether off the sucker. Tether off, we're gonna tether off the mother sucker. Tether off the sucker. Tether off, we're gonna tether off the mother sucker. Tether off the sucker. 
Inspired by David Bowie's fame, that is Give Up the Funk, Tear the Roof Off the Sucker by Parliament. Uh, That went up to number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 5 on the Soul Charts in April of 1976. It is safe to say that funk definitely had invaded the United States in the early to mid-1970s. You could hear it in television theme songs. Now, how many of my fellow Gen Xers remember this one? We watched so much television uh, in the 70s. I mean, man, kids, that's how we did television theme songs. That is the theme from one of the coolest police shows of the 70s, SWAT, and that's Rhythm Nation. And by the way, that song went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in uh, 1970. Well, I think it was released in November 75, and I believe it went to number one in 1976. Uh, the original Starsky and Hutch theme song is pretty funky, too. I realized when I was indulging in some reruns a couple of days ago. This was also an era when African Americans were creating funk on film in movies that have been given the name black exploitation. They were movies made by black people and offered roles to African American actors that were not getting them from white filmmakers. These are films like Shaft and Superfly, and Cleopatra Jones. Now, they were criticized by some people for their stereotypical portrayal of African Americans. And if you go back and look at the movies now, they do seem a little cheesy in spots. But they also had a very clear anti-establishment undertone. And they had some funky soundtracks. Isaac Hayes won an Academy Award for this in 1972, This is the theme from Shaft.
private dick That's a sex machine to all the chicks You're damn right His neck was brother man. Can you dig it? Who's the cat that won't cop out when there's danger all about? Right on. You see, this cat shaft is a bad mother. Shut your mouth. What I'm talking about, Shaft? Well, he can do it. He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. John So Isaac Hayes was the first African-American to win an Oscar for a non-acting role, and he accepted that Oscar with his grandmother next to him for the theme to Shaft. Hey, how good do you have to be to force a band to change its name? You have to be Chaka Khan good. The roots of the band Rufus go back to the 60s uh, and a band called The American Breed, which had a hit with Bend Me, Shape Me in 1967. By the way, Rufus was also a racially mixed band. Rufus brought Chaka Khan on board as a teenager, although she was a married teenager, in 1972. Now, the band had a bit of a rotating cast, and they also had some romantic drama, kind of reminiscent of Fleetwood Mac, but also like Fleetwood Mac, they sold a lot of records. When Rufus was recording Rags to Rufus, the album, Stevie Wonder was in the building, and he heard Chaka Khan sing. He recognized the power in her voice, and he wrote something for her to sing. He wrote, Tell Me Something Good. listen to that one on loop all day. In fact, I might when I am done here. Tell Me Something Good. Uh, That won a Grammy in 1974. That's a pretty nice song for Stevie Wonder to give away. I do know that he he plays it live often, and I can see why. 
it did not take long for Rufus to become Rufus featuring Chaka Khan because she was just something special. In fact, uh, Rufus featuring Chaka Khan, they are uh, one of the nominees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that's the way it's listed on the ballot is Rufus featuring Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan said uh, in an interview for The Guardian in 2008, she said, I was a black chick with a white band, and I could do that. It was powerful. For my money, Chaka Khan is the queen of funk. So when we say mainstream, we mean that moms and dads like whatever it is too. P-Funk was never all that mainstream because they scared moms and dads. They were just too out there for white folks in particular. That is why white folks and a lot of African-American moms and dads really liked Earth, Wind, and Fire. They made funk, but it wasn't scary. It wasn't militant. It wasn't too crazy. It didn't have uh, coded messages about space or anything like that. They had the big band, a really big band, and colorful costumes, and there was dancing and magic. David Copperfield created a magic act for them. Earth, Wind, and Fire's music, it's just about dancing and having fun. And they also evolved when disco steamrolled over funk in the second half of the 70s. Here's an example of that evolution, written by Ali Willis, a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Boogie Wonderland, in that oh-so-danceable funk disco hybrid from Earth, Wind, and Fire. not i don't know how you're not unless you're driving that's okay hey uh ali willis died the week that i recorded this um this is the week between christmas and new year's uh as we close out 2019 and she not only wrote this for earth wind and fire she also wrote september and she wrote the theme song to friends um she wrote uh what have i done to deserve this by pet shop boys she did some work on the broadway adaptation of the color purple Really, really an amazing talent. I don't know how Boogie Wonderland did not become a number one hit. It made it to number six, but it did sell somewhere in the range of what, like one zillion copies. I still have the 45. If you were breathing in 1979, you had a copy of Boogie Wonderland. In the late 70s, as disco ruled the music kingdom, in Minneapolis, a young African-American singer, songwriter, and one of the best guitar players to walk this earth, named Prince Rogers Nelson, was creating music that was all at once reminiscent of James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, Rick James, George Clinton, yet it was something all his own. Prince would go on to become as versatile an artist as ever, 
whoever lived, but there is no question that his roots were in funk. hurts that prince is gone uh that's i want to be your lover from his second album his self-titled second album that was released late in the summer of 1979 that's the album that has just kind of he's shirtless and you just see prince with naked shoulders and his head and i remember my mom giving me the side eye when she saw that album Even though disco bulldozed over funk on the radio and in record sales and four on the floor pushes aside on the one, funk did not die. Artists like Prince made it their own, and there is no doubt that funk became hip-hop. Hip-hop owes a debt to many artists that came before it and before it became a genre all its own. Uh, By the way, for more on hip-hop, please go check out episode six of this very podcast. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thanks so much for listening. A reminder that my show notes and a list of my sources is at ftr70.com. And you can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Please make sure to give a nice rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so others can find the show. Thanks so much. Bye for now.